Hi, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK. Coming up, Salon Politics reporter Amanda Marcotte joins us to talk about the political clusterfuck that was 2018. Can it be redeemed in the closing weeks? Probably not. What Donald Trump has revealed, unfortunately, and I wish there was a nicer way to say this, but I think that there is a tendency with the Republican voter base to sort of embrace an anomalous and apartheid-style politics in the sense that they believe that they're a minority that deserves to rule over a majority. Congresswoman Yvette Clark calls in to talk about a proposed Trump administration rule change for qualifying criteria for green cards and visas to the U.S. and a deadline for public comment. And then the forecast for this weekend, red with a 100% chance of vomit. Our senior SantaCon correspondent weighs in on how you can avoid the storm. Hi, welcome to the show. Today we've got a special end-of-year interview with frequent guest Amanda Marcotte, whose incisive reporting for Salon has included coverage of gender issues and Me Too, the Kavanaugh hearings, the Russia investigation, social media, and internet trolls. We'll try to talk about all of that and about what story of 2018 has the most consequence for 2019. Amanda, welcome back to 112BK. Thanks for having me. So let's do a little bit of like a year in review. What do you think was one of the most underreported stories of 2018? <laughs> it's hard to narrow it down. I mean, I think that it's interesting to me because the Trump administration takes up so much oxygen, and yet they're also the source of some of the most underreported stories of 2018. I would particularly flag the way that he's quietly allowed the sort of elite standard Republican Party to take over the federal bureaucracy and quietly deregulate in certain ways and then in other ways kind of overregulate. So I would say that, for instance, you have at the EPA and the Department of Interior, like they've been quietly taking away all these environmental regulations slowly over time. But at Health and Human Services, very, very quietly, they've been moving towards defunding contraception services across the country mm -hmm. and sex education and things like that. So I do hope people pay more attention to that because the Trump show, while as entertaining as it is, is also offensive. It's a big deal. It's important. But what's actually kind of going on behind the scenes matters more. Right. The the populism and race baiting perhaps makes for sexier headlines. But meanwhile, our, our country is quietly falling <laughs> apart behind the scenes as the puppet masters control the strings. Exactly. Exactly. I guess the flip side of that coin is what do you think is one of the most overreported stories of 2018? Oh, God, there's, you know, um, maybe it's just on my mind after George Bush's death recently, but both the, the funerals of George Bush and John McCain, I felt like, took up way more time in headline space than they really deserved. I mean, yes, they were important figures in our political environment, but I kind of got the sense that one of the reasons that there was so much attention paid to these funerals was they were seen as kind of oppositional figures to Donald Trump and that they were a way to sort of shame him. <laughs> because they were better, more responsible, more moderate Republicans. But McCain maybe to a certain extent, but I, I think that that was overrating George H.W. Bush's legacy and, and kind of forgetting some of the ways that he was 
one of the original architects of the current right-wing moment. The Willie Horton ad he ran mm -hmm. was a precursor to a lot of Trump's race baiting, things like that. Yeah, it's crazy to me that we are holding him up now as like a, a bastion of reason um, and centrism. But you actually wrote recently about how he is a precursor or he, he paved a pathway for Trump to ascend. Can you talk a little bit more about that, about how maybe they have more in common than we might expect? Yeah, I mean, you know, just really off the top of my head, it was the things that were most obvious to me was he ran race baiting demagoguery campaigns. And remind us maybe about the Willie Horton ad campaign. Um, so in 1988, when he was running against Michael Dukakis, he was well behind in the polls at 17 points at one point. And he with the help of Roger Ailes, and I do believe Lee Atwater, some some real notorious dirty tricksters in the Republican Party, redid the campaign strategy to make it more about some of these culture war issues. And one of the most memorable examples was an ad that he ran where they put up a picture of this black man named Willie Horton who had been out on furlough in Massachusetts an experimental program where they let criminals out on weekend furloughs and he committed crimes while on a weekend furlough. And this was used to sort of scare white America about Michael Dukakis and liberals, you know, letting supposedly criminal black people come to kill them. And at the time it was denounced as race baiting, it's become a famous historical example of race baiting. And it, I think, was echoed just in the 2018 campaign with um, Donald Trump running a very similar ad about an undocumented immigrant in California committing a murder and kind of trying to smear all of a certain category of people with that particular crime. Right. Same ad, just swapping a different name. Exactly. Um, what story do you hope that you never have to report again in 2019? What story would you like to die a slow death? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so many, I imagine. I mean, it's a tough one. I, I've been doing a lot of reporting on what I think is the mainstreaming of white nationalist talking points in America. In fact, I, I just filed on that again, so look for it at Salon. I've been reporting on this for two years, three years now, and I, I really wish it would stop happening. I think you speak for us all. <laughs> More than anything, that's the one I wish I never had to write that another story about Tucker Carlson is saying white nationalist things on Fox News again, mm -hmm. but I'm afraid that probably will. So what is this story that you just filed? So the Charlottesville riots of August 2017 resulted in a murder, as everyone probably knows, and the murderer is on trial right now in Virginia. And I was drawing a line between some of the things that the white supremacists that had the race riot last year and this man in particular, his name is James Fields, was saying to his mother on the phone in court or in tapes that were played in court, two things that are actually being said on Fox News on a regular basis now. And I find that very disturbing. Um, you know, one example, of course, is that the race rioters had a famous chant that they were chanting, you shall not replace us, you mm -hmm. know, implying that people of color were like coming for white people. And just on Tuesday on Fox News, Tucker Carlson was doing a segment where he said that immigrants were coming to replace Americans. But, you know, by that he meant, you know, white Americans, because wow. obviously immigrants are also Americans. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it, it was very disturbing because it, it's it's very much he uses softer language. He doesn't use the racialized terms, but he's making exactly the same argument that these white supremacists were making last year when they were rioting. Absolutely. So they're taking the language of extremists, tweaking it 
very slightly <laughs> and feeding it out into the television sets of Two million America. people wow. a night. I mean, that's who watches Tucker Carlson. Cool. Thanks, 2018. <laughs> Great year. Would you say we're now in December? Would you say that you are more or less optimistic than you were in January? Probably more in certain ways. I mean, obviously, the Democrats having huge, massive wins in November was good. I think it was expected, but there were, you know, so was Hillary Clinton winning in 2016. So a lot of us were anxious until the end. And I think that a lot of people may not understand until we're actually there, like how much it's going to change the sort of landscape. Yes, the Democrats only control the House of Representatives, but that means they control the gavel, they control all the committees, and they're going to be able to start having investigations of Donald Trump. I think they're probably going to go buck wild with (laughs) investigations of Donald Trump. And unlike the Robert Mueller investigation, they're going to be deliberately trying to pull as much of this stuff out in the public. He has, and I'm not criticizing him, he has his reasons for keeping a lot of his stuff quiet because he's got an open investigation going. Mm -hmm. But um, I think we're going to start learning a lot more of the dirty secrets that have been hidden from us for two years. So maybe do a little bit of crystal balling for 2019. What do you think we're going to see? I know that Recently, we've seen that Michael Flynn, there was a heavily redacted document that was released that intimates that he has cooperated with the government on things that we don't even know about yet. So what do you think might be some of the bombs dropped in, in 2019 in the politics arena? Oh, <laughs> it's probably irresponsible to speculate too wildly, but absolutely, I think we, please go we, ahead. <laughs> we all, I think we all have a suspicion that the reason that the, so much of that document was blacked out was it was about Donald Trump personally and his family and close advisors on the campaign. I would not be surprised if that's exactly what it was. I think Flynn was very close to Trump during the campaign. Roger Stone was involved and he speaks to Trump on the phone on the regular. I think that We're going to find out a lot more about this. Adam Schiff has suggested that of particular interest for the House Intelligence Committee is going to be investigating these plans to build a Trump Tower in Moscow that were still going on during the campaign, things like that. I think we're going to learn more. My my fondest hope is that we're going to actually get some tax documents out there. Because, again, the House will have subpoena power now. Mm -hmm. So we'll see. I mean, I don't want to be too wildly optimistic. But I'm hoping that a lot gets dragged out. But you are optimistic, and that's helpful for me. Uh, You know, I think that I've been erring on the side of pessimism ever since 2016. But, you know, we did have gains in the House. But meanwhile, we had gains at the state level as well. But we have the the Republican-controlled Congress in Wisconsin, for example, trying to wrest some of that power from the governor. Can you talk a little bit about some of those struggles at the state level that we might be seeing and and if this blue wave is going to have as much of an impact as some might hope. Yeah, I hope more people are paying attention to that Wisconsin story. And everybody should be because I think it's just so outrageous. It's an example of Republicans and and the politicians in that state are straight up telling reporters when they're asked, why are you doing this? Why are you using the lame duck session to wrest as much power away from the incoming Democratic majority as you can, or the governor, I mean, as you can. And they're blunt about it. We just disagree with him and we feel entitled to do whatever we want. And it, it's a, a very anti-democratic argument. It shows that I think Donald Trump has ushered in an era of Republicans being more blunt and straightforward about their anti-democratic impulses. And I don't think that the American people, even those who vote for Republicans, are going to be completely comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. I also am somewhat optimistic that it's not going to be as bad as it looks because 
I do know that Wisconsin Democrats are going to sue. They've sued before on this and they have won. It could end up being not as big a victory as it's currently looking for Republicans. I heard a soundbite from a Republican congressperson in Wisconsin who straight up said, well, I'm concerned that they're going to pass liberal policies, so we've got to stop them, which is kind of breathtaking in its bluntness, as you mentioned. And it also reminded me of the blocking of the Supreme Court nominee. And I just wonder if at any point people are going to sit up and be like, but that's not okay. That goes against the process of democracy, as you as you mentioned. I mean, I think people are. I think that that was a lot of what was driving the voter turnout in 2018. I think especially in states where there was massive voter suppression like Georgia, a lot of voters responded by being even more determined to vote. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think people dislike that. They do believe in democracy. Um, in a sense, there's nothing new about what's going on because it's been my belief that the Republican Party has believed, at least since Bill Clinton won in 1992, that Democratic rule is simply illegitimate. Mm. They treated Bill Clinton like he was illegitimate. They they treated Barack Obama like he was illegitimate, even though he won with a clear majority. They treated Hillary Clinton like her candidacy alone was kind of illegitimate. And I think that this is just sort of the flowering of an attitude that's been festering for a while. So Republicans have not won the popular vote in many of the last elections, but there's still sort of this idea that they know better. Do you think at any point that will shift, especially with sort of the the populist branch of the party making waves? No, I mean, I think that what Donald Trump has revealed, unfortunately, and I wish there was a nicer way to say this, but... (laughs) I don't think that there is. I think that there is a tendency with the Republican voter base to sort of embrace an, an almost an apartheid-style politics in the sense that they believe that they're a minority that deserves to rule over a majority. And, you know, it is racialized, not to the same extent that it was in South Africa, but... I think what we're going to see is that particular voting base believes that it's worth cheating and and I and it's worth doing whatever it takes to hold on to power. And I, again, they're not the majority of Americans. That's the whole point. They're probably 30 to 40 percent of Americans. But they will move heaven and earth to con- keep power because they think the rest of us are illegitimate. Looking ahead, we've just come off of one election cycle and 2019 means that we are at the beginning of another. Do you have any predictions for what we can see as people start tossing their hats into the presidential ring? Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I could put that off for a year, but, you know, I I worked very briefly on a presidential campaign. So I can tell you, yeah, they'll start in January 2019. That's Mm -hmm. when they're I'm sure I'm sure many uh, potential candidates have actually already started to quietly hire their campaign staff, at least the core of their campaign staff. So we're going to start seeing websites going up. (laughs) We're going to start seeing people getting hired. Um, Obviously, Elizabeth Warren is already has it hidden that she's got at least some kind of group of employees that are working on her campaign. I think we all have a good idea of who's going to run from the Senate, at least. We're going to see Warren running. We're going to see Booker running. We're going to see Harris running. We're going to see Gillibrand running. Joe Biden has basically all but said he's going to run. Joe Biden will not win. <laughs> um, so I think <laughs> you the- heard it here first, folks. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the question that everyone's going to be looking at in 2019 is actually, is Beto O'Rourke going to run? Because mm. that would be a genuinely interesting person to throw his hat in the ring because a a retired congressman (laughs) 
which is what he kind of is right now. That's not usually a typical candidate for a presidential run, especially on the Democratic side. So what you're saying is we have about three more weeks until the circus starts again. Yes. Yes. So everyone get in your (laughs) R&R. I think people forget in 2007 when there was a similar situation where you were looking at a very unpopular president sitting in office and an opportunity to run against him. Obama, Clinton, Edwards, they all had their sights up and running by February uh, 2007. So. (laughs) All right. Well, um, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on the show. On October 10th of this year, the Trump administration published a new rule that would change who was considered a public charge. Under the new rule, government officials would be required to deny a green card and most other visas to anyone who they predict could, at any point, for any reason, receive public assistance in virtually any way. Joining us by phone to talk about Congress's response to this rule and the upcoming deadline for public comment is Representative Yvette Clark. Welcome back to 112BK. Thank you for having me, Mackenzie. It's great to be back with you. So Trump is essentially trying to get around congressional oversight by changing the rules about who is considered a public charge. Is that right? And can you explain this a little bit to us? Sure. Let me start by saying that public charge has been a statutory ground for nearly 135 years for inadmissibility of individuals who are seeking to immigrate to the United States. And generally speaking, uh, what public charge is, is that within immigration law, there's a, a, a test, if you will, that looks at if someone is or is not likely to be predominantly dependent upon the government for basic subsistence, so that these individuals would become a burden on taxpayers uh, to take care of. And what are some of the criteria that historically people have been evaluated by? And tell me what these rules are changing, or this proposed rule change, uh, how it would expand that category. Right. Well, typically, when people enter the United States, they're looked at in terms of whether, in fact, they have a sponsor, uh, someone who is has submitted uh, a a request to have them join them in the United States. They typically look at benefits such as food stamps, Medicaid, things of that nature to see whether an individual would, given all of, I guess, the variables of that person's migration to the United States, immigration to the United States, whether they would not have the support system in place to be able to maintain a life in the United States. And what this new rule change would do is expand the categories under which someone is is tested. And they're looking at, uh, again, Medicaid, supplemental nutrition assistance programs, Section 8 housing benefits, Medicare Part D subsidies, and other forms of cash and non-cash benefits. For several years, these programs have have helped 
immigrants across the nation, particularly large immigrant populations like the ones that live in my constituency to pursue the American dream. And for the most part, individuals who have been granted the ability to come to the United States have used these benefits to essentially climb the ladder of of success in our nation. And you and, represent the the ninth congressional district here in Brooklyn. Um, and this Brooklyn. and this affects your your district um, immensely. Uh, it was estimated that almost half a million New Yorkers could be affected by this rule change, and more than half of those people live in your district. So can you tell me a little bit about stories that you're hearing about how people are perhaps not signing up for Medicaid or not accessing other benefits well, I, out of fear? I think, yeah, I think that there has been a sort of jumping out of the immigrant population to try to get ahead of what could be a very drastic penalty if they are have been or are being assessed as a public charge. And what we are saying to people in the community is that we are in a rulemaking time period where there is a public comment period for people to comment on their concerns about the rule and how it would impact them, that the rule has not gone into effect, and that we are looking at at remedies, should it go into effect, in the next Congress. And so we're so encouraging families who may believe that this pertains to them and then takes that to the worst-case scenario due to words through the grapevine not being fully briefed and informed and educated about the public charge rule to not take drastic measures. It's important that if one is enrolled to receive uh, some benefit that undergirds the family, that they not rush to judgment at this point in time, but that we encourage everyone to talk about how detrimental this particular rule would be to uh, our communities and our families. And Representative Clark, the last question is, since we are in this period of public comment, how can people make sure that their voice is heard? Absolutely. I want to encourage everyone to go to either my website, where we will direct them to where they can uh, submit a comment on this. They can also reach out directly to the Department of Homeland Security, which is the agency that has promulgated the rule and put it out for public comment. Either way, it is important that folks use whatever is at their disposal. I also believe that the uh, Health and Hospitals Corporation of New York City is also accepting comments so they can go to the Health and Hospital Corporation's website as well to, to uh, make sure that they're uh, commenting on how this rule, if it went into effect, would be devastating. And when is the deadline for this uh, public the comment deadline, period? The end of the public comment period is December 10th, which is next week, uh, next week Monday, I believe. Or okay, Tuesday. so that's next Monday. People have until the 10th to make sure that their voices are heard. Thank you so much, Representative Clark, for talking to us about this important issue. Thank you for having me, Mackenzie.
It's getting pretty hairy out there. Temperatures are dropping, the streets are getting icy, and the most disastrous day of the year is almost upon us. Our senior SantaCon correspondent, Brian Enk, is here to gird us for the coming calamity. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Mackenzie, thank you for having me. So it is the least wonderful time of the year. I'm wondering if you have some tips for our viewers on how to survive SantaCon, which is this Saturday. Well, uh, government officials are saying that all New York residents should be prepared. Hurricanes, Brad, Todd, Michael, and Dirty Doug, among others, will be setting down Saturday around midday, depending on what scientists are calling the pregame stage. And uh, all residents should be on alert and be ready for anything uh, that might come this way. Is there any disaster preparedness that our viewers should be aware of? Should they be going to the store, stocking up on supplies? Well, experts are saying one thing to do is uh, duct tape your windows and doors, uh, sandbags that you would formerly use for flooding. You can tear those open for the gallons of puke and vomit that will be hitting the streets. Uh, and at this point, though, you know we're at a point where it's not safe to go get those supplies. Hunker down in your home, find the centermost part of your apartment or house, and just wait through a very long afternoon and night. Um, so you appear to be a white man. That is correct. Um, have you been able to move freely uh, throughout this population during previous SantaCons? I've been reporting on SantaCon for four years now, and I've never had an issue uh, traveling. It is predominantly white, though year after year I have been told by most participants that they have many, many black work friends. Yes, yes, yes of course, Santas would say that. Um, and what should one do if, if somebody is forced to go out into the wild on Saturday um, and they come across a stray Santa, what would you recommend they do? Well, luckily we think this year there will be less stray Santas. A lot of bodegas will be closing early. Restaurants and bars have already been putting up signs saying no Santas or anyone dressed as a Santa, elf, reindeer, slutty reindeer, or really anyone from New Jersey. They will be halting service towards those people. But if you do find yourself with a Santa by yourself, it's important to not make many sudden movements. Uh, make your presence known in the safest way possible. And if you would like to steer that Santa, lines like your bros and buds are that way, or I hear that bar is cool, that will usually get them moving in a separate direction. Right. I always get confused about if you're supposed to make yourself big or play dead. Uh, with Santa's big, elves play dead. Right. Okay. Yes. So this is actually just the beginning of storm season. Um, I'm wondering if you have any predictions for the coming months ahead. Unfortunately, yes. This is a time of year that will be tough for most New York residents. Uh, coming up uh, December 31st, we can obviously expect Hurricanes Claire, uh, Kelly, and Megan with a Y to set down. And just be prepared the same way with SantaCon as you will on those. Thank you so much. We will check in with you for future storms. Appreciate your time, Brian. Mackenzie, thank you so much. And now, a story about one place where you won't have to worry about running into a Santa next year. Saturday is the last day for Hotbird, the much-loved Clinton Hill bar and my local. After eight years of fire pits in winter and corn from the taco truck in summer, the neighborhood staple will be closing to make way for, what else, a 29-story luxury apartment building. In my 20s, Hotbird hosted countless gatherings, including my own 27th birthday celebration. And in my 30s, almost as many goodbye parties as friends decamped for L.A. and upstate because of the gentrification symbolized by all the 29-story luxury apartment buildings going up in Brooklyn. 
It bookended my entire last relationship as both the site of one of my first flirtations with my ex and also our last encounter, an epic display of public emoting that earned it the nickname Snotbird among my friends. Our producer Ross Tuttle met his wife there. With its happy hour Aperol spritzes and communal picnic tables, Hotbird was one of those Brooklyn bars, like the Union Sisters, Pool and Hall, where you could cut the hormones in the air with a butter knife. Neighborhoods change and gentrify. Hotbird itself was named after a local chain of chicken restaurants that closed in the 90s, and it's housed in a former auto body shop that seeded way so Brooklyn's creative class had a place to go on Tinder dates. And who knows, in 40 years, these condos might be raised to make way for a Bitcoin mine overseen by our cyborg overlords, or it might simply be under 10 feet of water. Even so, I'm taking Hotbird's closing hard. Then again, who needs a neighborhood commons when you could have a building where your ears pop in the elevator, or a building with an indoor dog park, or a building with a rooftop infinity pool, or a stroller valet, a feng shui consultant, a golf simulator, a walk-in humidor, or a pet spa? To quote one of our greatest sages, Charlie Brown, good grief. Farewell, Hotbird. Thanks for all the good times. And that's our final show for the year. Next year, I'll be back as the regular host. Hope to see you then. And have a happy new year. This episode of 112BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. The show is written and series produced by Ross Tuttle. Fred Brown is senior producer. Shireen Bargi is our digital journalist. And Isabel Alcantara is the associate producer. It was recorded in studio by Eric Hagaseg, Clinton Filson Jr., and Antonio M. Rosario. Naeem Van is the production assistant. The show is edited by Mira Al-Rahim. Alexander Pointzolo is our post-production supervisor, and Emily Bogosian is our post-producer. Today's segments were produced by Shireen Bargi and Isabel Alcantara. Executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias. 